It's always a challenge knowing if the mask is going to come off correctly. So, Good morning, church. Happy New Year. Uh, for those of you who may be new, my name is Rob Mancuso. I'm one of the, I serve as one of the pastors here. And I want to start off this morning with a question. How would you feel if after the service I came over to your house? Maybe that's okay. But since I'm pretty hungry after service... I decide to go through your refrigerator, kind of rummage through there, find some stuff to make a sandwich. <laughs> After I make a sandwich, kind of sit down on your couch. I don't sit at the kitchen table. I, you know, sit down on your couch. And, you know, I also decide that I want to have a nice, you know, glass of wine. I'm sorry, not wine. I forgot. We're good Baptists here. We, we do grape juice. So, but... While I'm drinking the grape juice, I kind of spill it all over the couch and all over the floor. But instead of cleaning it up, I decide just to kind of kick my feet up on the, on, the, on the coffee table just so I don't kind of get it on my feet because I don't want to get my feet wet or anything. And I'm kind of eating and sloppily. It's going all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's kind of rude, right? I mean, and then after eating, it gets worse. I just get bored and decide to kind of go through your closets and drawers and because I'm just bored and have nothing to do. So you'd be pretty shocked and offended, wouldn't you? I mean, first of all, I'm a guest in your home, and that is not something that guests should do. I, I sincerely hope that none of us would go into someone's house that way because it's kind of disrespectful. Now, I realized when I was thinking of this analogy that we're pretty close to Christmas, and a lot of us have had guests over, so maybe this one hits a little too close to home. So I'm going to kind of move on to the next analogy. It's the same reason we don't go into an hotel room and start moving around the furniture. Well, I, I don't like where the bed is. I'm going I'm to move the bed over here. And I, I don't like the dresser here. I'm going I'm to move the dresser and the TV because I don't like it. And then, you know what? I really don't like the color of the carpet or the curtains. So I'm going to run out to Joanne Fabrics. And I'm going to kind of get new curtains and put new curtains up in the hotel. We just don't do that. When we check into a hotel or when we're guests in somebody's house, we know our time there is limited. We don't get overly concerned with the color of the blinds or the carpet or the pictures on the wall. Because we know it's not ours to begin with. And our time in that room, our time in that space is limited. We're just passing through. What if we started the new year thinking of our entire lives in this manner? That we're just guests. That we're just sojourners. That our time here on earth is just the hotel room before we get to our eternal home that Jesus Christ has prepared for us in heaven. How would that transform how we see our house or how we see our resources, or how we see how we spend our time and our treasure? What if we saw every single breath as a gift from God and understood that our mere lives are nothing but a vapor? Would it change what we think about, what we obsess over, what we worry about? Would it change those things? This morning, we're going to be studying what may seem like an interest, interesting psalm to start the New Year's with. 
Many consider Psalm 39 to be a funeral psalm because it talks about the brevity of our lives. Happy New Year! Funeral psalm, right? All joking aside, there is no bigger fan of New Year's than I am. I love the idea of making resolutions and the crispness and the newness of a new year. Now, some may mock this idea. Normally, I can be a pessimistic person, but in this instance, I love to think of all the potential of a new year. But what if we started the new year understanding the brevity of life, understanding that this year, this month, this day may be our last As a church family, we've gone through some heartbreaking losses this past year. And I'm not sure any of those who passed away started last year thinking that this could be their last. And conversely, I'm not sure many of us started the year thinking, I can lose a loved one this year. And I don't mean that in a depressing or cavalier or disrespectful way. But if we truly understand the brevity, the shortness, the frailty of our lives, how different would our attitudes be? Maybe we would pull our families and friends a little closer. Maybe we'd laugh a little more, be more generous. And most importantly, maybe we would address the sin in our life more seriously and share the gospel with more urgency. And spend less time on working and worrying over the things of this world and spend more time storing up treasures in heaven since that's where our heart longs to be. In Psalm 39, we see David's response under the hand of God's discipline and David struggle greatly with his circumstances. We see him struggle with his tongue and the words of his mouth as well as his sin. As we start off the new year, it will be both instructional and encouraging to us to see how David responds in the midst of discipline, of God's discipline, and to see where David's hope is. And those will be our two points this morning, seeing how David responds in the midst of discipline and where David's hope is. So let's get into God's word. Let's start by reading Psalm 39. To the choir master. Chidudutham, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sing, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, as I mused the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you 
who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not hold your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. Point one, how David responds in the midst of God's discipline. In order to understand the first three verses, we kind of need to understand where David is. And he's under God's discipline. If you read ahead to verse 11, David says, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. So before we really get into it, let's get an understanding of what God's discipline is. Just as the word discipline, that word, may actually bring different thoughts to everybody's mind. For some, you may have had a father or a parent or or somebody who was really harsh with discipline. Or completely ignored discipline. Or somewhere who fell somewhere in between. Unlike our earthly father or earthly fathers, our heavenly father administers discipline perfectly. He's never too harsh. He's never too lenient. And the goal of his discipline is for us to grow in holiness and maturity. To be clear, discipline is not the same as condemnation. And we get those two things confused oftentimes. When we are under God's discipline, we are not under God's condemnation. In Romans 8.1, Paul says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One author says this, discipline has to do with training and growth. Condemnation has to do with punishment and guilt. He goes on to say, discipline is training. And that training involves both positive and negative aspects. Part of discipline is simply guiding someone to follow certain rules or to observe certain behaviors. Another part of discipline involves reproof to correct disobedience. And I think that second part is where we see David. Under God's reproof to correct a disobedience or David's sin. This helps us understand David's um, predicament. We'll later see that David even understands that his circumstances are a result of his sin. And they were ordained by God as discipline for a specific sin in David's life. Let's reread verses 1 through 3. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was silent and mute. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. David's circumstances are that the wicked are in his presence. He can't shake them. Whatever is going on, David is without peace, and his distress is growing worse. The Hebrew word for distress can also be translated grief or sorrow for mental or physical pain or disappointment and disaster. It's a strong word. These are not just normal circumstances. David is struggling in his pain, 
physically, and through these words we see also emotionally. And three times he refers to keeping silent and resolving to not sin with my tongue, to guard my mouth with a muzzle, and being mute and silent. He says that his heart became hot within him and he was about to speak. Has anybody ever been in that circumstance where you feel like David? Where you are just, you feel all of the pressure all around you and you're just, you know you have to keep your mouth shut. These verses are a great example of how we should respond to difficult circumstances. Especially when we know that they are a result of God's discipline. God can use many things to discipline us. For me, God says, this sin that you struggle with, this thing that you struggle with, I'm going to make you stand in front of a couple hundred people and teach them and be transparent with them on what I'm working in your heart with right now. No joke. I'd love to say I stand before you and I say, I, I, you know, I, I, know under, I understand this stuff. This is stuff I'm just happy to teach. That's, that's not the case. I stand up here as somebody who this is exactly, God has been working on circumstances in my own life these past few weeks as I've been studying this. For many of us, when we're in difficult circumstances, the first way we sin is with our mouth. I heard a, uh-huh, hmm. When we get in trouble, we want to talk our way out of it. We want to lie our way out of it. We want to argue with our way out of it or just leave a trail of destruction with, with hurtful words. We want to defend ourselves. But instead, David says, I will guard my mouth. I will, excuse me, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Now, David knew it would figuratively take an animal's muzzle to keep his mouth shut. For anyone who made a New Year's resolution to be more honest, I'm going to test it right now. All right? How many of us got ourselves in trouble with our mouth this past year? That's hopefully most of us. This is a good word from the Lord through David on the seriousness that we need to take guarding our tongue. James 3, 5 through 12 says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring uh, pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, these verses from James show us how our words can be rightly used to praise God and bring him glory or be used to wrongly tear others down. 
Now, when we're reading these verses from Psalm 39 and we get to verse 3, we kind of expect David to explode with anger. Like it finally happened, the muzzle failed, and he's going to lash out at those enemies surrounding him. It's almost like we're rooting for him to do it because that's kind of what we would do, right? We get to verse 3 and it says, As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Like David is finally going to defend himself. And we kind of expect that to be anger. Now, if you don't believe me, how often, I'm sorry, we, we think that because so oftentimes that's exactly how we'd react since anger has been added to most Christian spiritual inventory list. You don't believe me? How often do we get our news or opinions from people who are spouting it out in anger? We have turned righteous anger into a daily art form. Hello? David doesn't do that. Instead of getting angry and lashing out at God and lashing out at others, we get to verse 3 and he says, Then I spoke with my tongue, and it is shocking what comes next. We see David break his silence, and in verses 4 through 6 he says, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made me my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. <laughs> Do you see in these verses... Why David is considered a man after God's own heart? Like, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy who's in distress? And, and who's, who is growing? Like, he wasn't even able to hold his peace? Wasn't fire burning within him? Doesn't he, why doesn't he just say, like, oh Lord, why me? Like, what are you, why are you doing this to me? Don't, don't you remember that I'm the king of Israel? No. When his enemies are in his presence and the pressures of life and the circumstances that God has ordained is squeezing David and pushing him to the tipping point, listen, listen, to, God's, listen to David's humble response to God. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. This is nothing like the response we see from Jonah after God spared the Ninevites or Elijah after Jezebel threatened him. If you remember, they both asked God to take their lives, right? And here we have David ask God to show him how fleeting life is, how short his days are. And David acknowledges that God is the one who made all of his days in the first place. When David says, let me know how fleeting I am, that kind of flies in the face, completely flies in the face of what our society says about ourselves. We're told that we are not fleeting. We are powerful. We're important. We need to make big plans because we have so much time ahead of us. Like my example about being in a hotel room, how much would it help us to understand that this life is nothing but a shadow. When the sun moves and it never stops moving, the shadow disappears. 
When your breath is on the glass or outside on a cold day, it disappears quickly. Each of us will start the year with the expectation that 2022 is going to be a whole lot better than 2021, right? But will it? We want less heartbreak. We want less loss. We want less conflict. We want more fun and more comfort and more blessings. But maybe God is graciously using these circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether it be a pandemic or sickness or the loss of loved ones, and God is helping us truly understand how fleeting, fragile, and precious life is. It would actually be unloving if God would allow us to be so comfortable in this world that we would forget that this is not our home. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What if we prayed like David and asked for God to let us know the measure of our days? What if we saw 2022 as borrowed time from God? And what if we resolve to be obedient with each and every day that the Lord grants us? For me, that's a New Year's resolution I'd like to be held accountable to because my default is to forget that my days are numbered. Which leads us to point two, where David's hope is. David completely pivots to a beautiful confession in verse seven through thir- in verses 7 through 13. In verse 7, David confesses, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Instead of looking at his outward circumstances or dwelling too long on how he inwardly feels, feels he turns his focus upwards. Hope is a powerful thing and something we can oftentimes put in the wrong places. One pastor said, Loving relationships are a wonderful gift from God, but people can easily be taken away. If your hopes are there, you'll be left empty and disappointed. Is your hope in this world or in the things of this world? You will surely be disappointed because those things cannot satisfy your soul and they're as fleeting as your breath on a cold morning. But if you make the Lord, if you make the Lord and his promises your hope, you will never be disappointed. Closed quote. So I have another question for you this morning. Where is your hope in this coming year? It's so easy for us to mistakenly put our hopes in the wrong things. Our bank accounts, our spouses, our children, our jobs, our reputations, our plans, and all of those things that promise hope but give false hope and are ultimately incapable of providing any hope whatsoever. They are like the idols that Pastor Zach mentioned last week. You may speak to them, but they're never going to hear you, and they're never going to speak back. 1 Peter 1.13, 1, 1 Peter 1.13, which Pastor Tyrone read earlier, says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love the old hymn by Edward Moat, which says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other, sand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. As Christians, we are prone to put our hope in the wrong things. But God often uses discipline to bring us back to a right relationship with him. My non-Christian friends this morning, where is your hope? If you're here today or watching on the live stream, where does your hope lie for this coming year? Start this year with being honest and answering that question. If you know you've been basing your hope on the wrong things, I beg you, come to Christ this morning. Now, how can we, like David, have hope about God's coming kingdom? And why on earth would we want to see our lives as fleeting? Well, it starts by admitting that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And there is nothing we can do to atone for those sins. It means that we need to repent and confess and turn from our sins and believe that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. And that he was nailed to a cross in our place as the punishment that each of us deserved for our sins. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead as a guarantee that his sacrifice was sufficient and that the debt had been paid for our sins. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, or if you want to talk more about what it means to be a Christian, please come up after the service and talk to one of the pastors. In verse 8, we see David ask God to deliver him from his transgressions, his wrongdoings, his rebelliousness, and make not... Make him not the scorn of the fool. Like, I love David. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. <laughs> he confesses his transgressions, and he professes that God is the only one who can deliver him. In verse 9, David goes back to what he previously said in verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. That's what he says in verse 2. But here in verse 9, David says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth. Now, why does David say that? Is it because David was super spiritual? He was like a super, you know, super spiritual person and read a couple books on the art of shutting up? No. David says, for it is you who have done it. Just as we see that self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we see David confess that it wasn't his own doing. It was the Lord's. In verse 10, David then gets to the heart of the matter. He asks God to remove your stroke from me, which could also be translated plague or affliction or infection. David confesses that he is spent. He has no more strength. And he is pleading with God to remove his affliction since he is just at the end of himself. When we get to verse 11, David defines God dis God's discipline when he confesses that his circumstances are a rebuke for his own sin. One commentator says, Why would God consume as a moth what is precious to us? That sounds cruel. The answer is because we're counting the wrong things as precious. Our hope isn't fully in the Lord, but in other things. So God has to consume those things to show us that he alone is worth hoping in. Closed quote. 
David again acknowledges that all mankind is a mere breath. The word breath comes from the Hebrew word that is used 36 times in Ecclesiastes, which means vanity. And we preached through that a couple years ago. It refers to that which has no substance to what is transitory or frail. David ends this psalm with a beautiful cry to the Lord in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Oftentimes, we pray to God, right? But if we're honest, do, do we truly cry out in desperate prayer to God like this? It isn't just a raise your voice cry, right? Like I'm raising my voice. It is, it is, it is tears. It's desperate. David is weeping over, David is weeping and is broken over his sin. This isn't just a worldly grief, but a godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly griefs produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is true repentance on the part of David. And David comes to the source of his hope. And David knows that it is God who ordained these circumstances in his life. And God can forgive him and, and forgive him of his sins and remove his circumstances. And we know David understands this when he writes in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, excuse me, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David ends verse 12 with a reminder that he is a sojourner with God, a guest like all of his fathers. Now, is David reminding God that life is short? No. David is praying so he, David, would be reminded of that. David needed to be reminded of those truths. Let's not skip what he says, though, for I am a sojourner with you. Sojourner can also be translated in some translations, stranger. And I love what, what the pastor Charles Spurgeon says about these verses. I am a stranger with thee. There is a sweet familiarity about this expression. As if the psalmist said, Lord, I am not at home. I am a stranger here, and you too are a stranger. Men will not acknowledge you. Therefore, Lord, sympathize with me. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with you. In verse 13, David says, Look away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. Now, David isn't asking God to depart from him or stop caring for him. Instead, knowing that his weakness and circumstances were due to God's discipline, God's hand of discipline on him, David's humbly asking God to look at him, no longer with the eyes of correction or rebuke or discipline, so that David could do the work that God set before him, before his life was finished. Now, what a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And what a great example of how to respond to God's discipline. And what a great reminder of the brevity of our life. It is truly a great way to start the new year. And, wanna, and I want to end this sermon with, a, with, with just a few practical applications that we can draw from this psalm. As I previously mentioned, this is considered a funeral psalm, and I think it's fitting that we think of this as a funeral for 2021. We can remember the good times of this past year, 
We can remember the heartaches and the hurt. But as we also celebrate that God's hand, God is the one whose hand guided us through all of it and got us into 2022. I have three practical applications from this psalm as we move into the new year. Application number one, guard your response during times of discipline and trials. Unless we're planning on living a sinless life in 2022, and if that was your resolution, it may have lasted about five minutes, we need to guard our tongues and our responses during times that God disciplines us or allows trials in our life. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how can we do this? I think the first step is admitting, like David, that our sin can sometimes cause our circumstances. When we find ourselves in these times of discipline, we should lean heavily on each other. We need to be transparent with each other, asking for prayer, asking for to be held accountable. When, like David, our, hot, our hearts become hot and the fire is burning within us. If we remember that God uses his discipline to correct us, to sanctify us, to grow us in Christ's likeness, we can then count it all joy for what he is allowing us to go through. Just like the fact that God is disciplining us, it reminds us that God disciplines his children. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And John, first, excuse me, John 1, 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God and so we are. Application point two, put your hope in the right place. Like David, make the song and cry of your heart this year be, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. I want all of us to spend some time today taking an inventory of all of the things that we put our hope in. What do you spend your time on? What do you spend your money on? What keeps you up at night? What are the things that if, if taken away would rob you of your joy? doesn't mean that we go through life being cold and indifferent to everyone and everything. It means we keep those things in perspective and not see those things as a means of our joy, but see those things as a means to use for God's glory. It helps us put our hope in the right place. I think the best place to go is making the best way of doing this is making reading God's word a priority this year. As Pastor Zach has previously mentioned, find a Bible reading plan where you are regularly taking in God's word and seeing how he fulfills each of his promises and seeing how knowing Jesus Christ gives us the hope we need for every single day. C.S. Lewis said this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual, look, continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world 
are the ones who thought the most of the next. Lastly, application point three, remember that life is but a breath. If we remember that this world is just temporary and that we're just passing through as guests, we've become less focused, less enamored, and less concerned with the things of this world that lead us so easily to sin. We want to stop obsessing over the distractions like the colors of the blinds or the carpet or the types of furnishings of this world. Since we know that we're just a guest here and our stay is not meant to be permanent but temporary. How freeing it would be to know that we're just passing through this world until we get to our eternal home to be with God and praise him forever. Not only that, we need to understand that as Christians, that even though the blood of Christ spares us from God's wrath, we will still give an accounting to God for how we spent our time here on earth. That's weighty. Some may think that by focusing on the brevity and shortness of life, somehow demeans or cheapens like what we think of our time here. But God wants us to think of it in the exact opposite manner. By understanding our brevity and seeing every day, every breath as a gift from God, we will be freed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We want to spend less time on our wants and desires since they are fleeting and more time on what pleases the Lord and looking for ways of serving each other. Understanding that my days are numbered and understanding that your days are numbered should transform us and give us a zeal and passion to share the gospel. Because like Peter said in John 6, we know that Jesus is the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus Christ is truly our hope for the new year. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess, Lord, that so often we put our hope in the wrong things. Lord, so often we think of our lives as permanent, and we just assume that we have 12 months, 12 years, 20 years, Lord, where, Lord, you have not promised us tomorrow. Lord, help us to focus on being obedient in every minute that you have given us, Lord. Lord, help us this coming year to be obedient every day, Lord, to seek you through prayer, through being in your word, word, Lord, and putting our hope in Christ, Lord, and in nothing else. Lord, I just lift up our church for this coming year, Lord. I pray that you would unify our church, Lord. I pray that you would heal those who are sick, Lord. I pray that you would heal broken relationships, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would keep our lives in proper perspective. Lord, we do love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and your reminder this morning, Lord, of how fleeting our lives are. Lord, we love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen.